0: Or a phone, some device. You'll be looking at the scripture with us this morning. We'll be in Luke chapter 7. I've been working through Luke now um, for the last couple months, um, working through this gospel. Remember, Luke is writing as a, as a second generation believer. Um, he's writing, um, looking to give assurance, right? Looking to give certainty to the story of Jesus. And so he starts with the announcements of John the Baptist and then ultimately Jesus works his way through the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, and then has a sequel, the book of Acts, which goes into the first generation or two of the church, looking to give an orderly account that would give certainty and assurance to us of the whole story of Jesus. And so last week, as we finished chapter 6, um, this, the Sermon on the Plain, right, the question that was really Jesus was presenting and asking the audience was this, is who are you going to follow? Right? There's going to be multiple opportunities, multiple options to follow someone. Who are you going to follow? And he was showing that, there's listen, there's going to be those who will follow me and there will be those who will say they're following me, but actually aren't. They're only saying, Lord, Lord, but they're not building their house on the rock. So we're going to pick up um, this morning in verse 1 of chapter 7. And after he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, so the sermon that we've seen the last few weeks in chapter 6, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and to heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He's worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he's the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself. I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore I don't presume to come to you, but say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. And soon afterward, he went into the town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, He had compassion on her and said to her, Don't, "'Do not weep.' Then He came and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And He said, "'Young man, I say to you, arise.' And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. And fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, "'A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited His people.' And this whole report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all of the surrounding country. So we see these these two miraculous accounts this morning, and before we look at, at them a little closer, um, listen, we live in a culture right now that does not tend to appreciate nuance, right? Like we, we like to to know exactly where you stand on something, and as soon as you begin to clarify, well, you know here's what I think about this. People make assumptions about you, right? So we see this especially in politics, but we see it all across the board. Um, That if you say that you love something, it means you automatically hate the opposite or whatever they deem to be the opposite of it. Although you haven't said that you dislike it, if you claim to like something, it must mean you hate something else. That's just kind of where we're at in culture, right? That if you were to say you love ketchup, people would say, why do you hate mustard? Right? Like, And it sounds absurd, right? But we see this kind of rhetoric happening on social media, in the news, even in conversation. That to make a stand for any one thing seems like you don't care about something else. We've seen it even with the Supreme Court news this week. right? That to make a claim on any particular point means that you are washing away or negating something else. And so what Luke likes to do is he likes to pair his stories together, right? Because we see initially a story of of a man, right? And he pairs it now with the story of a woman that as soon as you begin to think, well, wait a second, this Jesus is only focusing on one type of person, that he immediately shows us that's not true. And so he pairs stories together like this intentionally. And so what I want us to do is kind of walk through these stories side by side, looking at both the centurion and the widow. Um, so we begin in, in chapter 7 with the centurion. Jesus has finished this sermon and his teaching. He's still got a crowd that's following him. And as he's moving, um, a, a group of people show up. And they say, hey, listen, we, have, we know this man, the centurion, and he has need of you. He has a request of you. A centurion would be a soldier who was in charge of another hundred soldiers. Um, They weren't always well respected, right? But they had influence. Um, Some of them were well respected. They they were they were men of means, um, and they were expected to be benefactors in their area, right? That they would take care of people. And so he now is making a request of Jesus. On the flip side, we see now a widow, and she's just lost her only son. And we see someone vulnerable, at risk, marginalized. In this society, to not have a husband or a son to provide for you, you are at at huge risk of not being taken care of. It was a a big deal. And so we see a woman who was not well-connected, right? who didn't have the means to help herself, who was at risk of life getting much more difficult, even in her grief. And so we we see a well-connected man, and a woman at risk, right? as our primary movers in these two stories. The the centurion is going to be an outsider. This is a non-Jew, right? Someone who was not following um, the God of Judaism. And so, even when he asks for help, what does he do? Right? He sends people on his behalf. Look at verse three. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and to heal a servant. So he basically grabs some men that he has built a synagogue for, who he has done all this, this good for, and says, Hey, will you go on my behalf? Right? I know I'm an outsider. Maybe you can get him to come. They've heard, right, Jesus is already healed in Capernaum. So the stories are going that this man is doing something. And so the centurion is sending, asking for help. Um, and and so it, it's it 's interesting a centurion would often have been seen as an enemy of the people, um, and yet this one is well respected by the Jews, but it doesn't mean that he believes the same and and so as you think about this when when Carmen and I were in Yemen, we did not become Muslims, right, but we fought to have um fight is probably the wrong word. we worked hard to have good relationships with people right to to develop good relationships and develop rapport. So there was a, a, a time, right, where, where Yemenis, right, who knew that I did not agree with them or believe like them would do things on our behalf because of, like, a sympathetic, healthy relationship. that so they would say, you're not like those other Americans, right? And because they would have thought, they know what all Americans are like, but they're like, you're not like that. But it didn't mean that I believed like them. We had somehow moved into a new category of person. And so they would do things to care for us and to defend us and to protect us and to look out for us. This is what we're seeing here is that this centurion is not a believer, right? But he has served the Jewish community, probably has some, some sympathy for them, has done some things on their behalf, and they are now glad to go to Jesus and to speak on the centurion's behalf to try to get Jesus to come and heal his servant. So he's an outsider, needing... The, um, others to help him. This woman is a Jew, right? This is her place, her people. Obviously we see the difference in that it's a man and a woman. And it's interesting that the centurion, it looks for a moment like he's trying to earn Jesus' favor, right? Because look at the argument they make. Um, they said he's, a wor- he's worthy to have you do this for him. Like what a bold claim. This man is worthy to have you do him a favor. He loves our nation, and he's the one of he's the one who built us our synagogue. And and we just see that Jesus he goes with them. But that the centurion actually sees himself rightly. And so as the elders are moving Jesus towards Capernaum to this man, right, he sends a group of friends. Look down in verse six. And when, he was, when Jesus wasn't far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself. I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Right? Luke is showing us this um, contrast intentionally. The, the, the Jews, the elders are saying, this man is worthy, Jesus, for you to help him out. And the man is saying, I see myself correctly. The centurion is saying, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Like, I know my needs. I know what I've heard about you. It makes us think of Peter, right, in Luke five. When he um, has the miracle of the fish in the boat, right, what does he immediately say? He goes, Go away from me, right? I'm not wor- I'm a sinner. Like that he had this moment where although Jesus is calling him to be one of his disciples, that he sees himself and his needs so great and Jesus is so much other than that his response was I'm not worthy. And so the centurion is is having a similar moment of humility of seeing himself rightly. The woman has nothing to offer. Right where where the centurion potentially could have said, "Hey, look at all the things I've done, you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours." The woman, I mean, she's just in grief. She's lost a husband previously, has now lost her only son. She has nothing to offer, and it's not even asking for anything in this moment. We go back to the centurion, and he says this, he goes, listen, I know what it's like to be a man of authority. I know what it's like to be under someone else's authority, right? He didn't have his own army, he was a part of the army, had authority over him, and then had men under him. he says, when I tell them to do it, they do it. When I tell them to come, they come. When I tell them to go, they do it. And so what he's saying is he's making a claim here that says, Jesus, you are working with intense authority. You are obviously, um, whether, you're, whether he's making a claim that Jesus is divine, he's, he knows he at least is on behalf of God. That he is under that authority. And he says, so if you'll say it, it'll happen. If you'll do it, it'll happen. Like, I believe that and I trust that because I know that as a mere man, that's the type of authority I have. And yet, look at the things that you're doing. He shows trust and belief and faith in this authority that Jesus' Word is sufficient. Listen, the Pharisees already in chapter 5, and verse 21, in chapter 6, verse 2, when they've seen Jesus do tremendous things, they critique it. And they're the religious leaders who have been studying the Scriptures, awaiting the Messiah. When they see Him do these things, they're like, ah, you're blaspheming. You're speaking against God. And here this unbelieving, non-Jew Gentile is saying, if you'll just say it, it'll happen. I trust and I believe that. It's tremendous faith in what he has seen and heard of Jesus. In the story of the widow, he looks at this woman who has nothing to offer. He meets her in her grief and in her need. Right. And he stops and he he touches the the plank like the open coffin that they would have been carrying the body. And he and he stops them. Right. That he is putting his hand in a place that would have defiled him, seemingly. Right. And he's stopping this funeral procession. And Nain would have been a small town, a couple hundred people probably at most. And what would ha- typically what would happen at this day and age is if someone died, you buried them that day. And, and crowds would come because they're, they're grieving and they're mourning. There would be groups of men and groups of women and, and professional mourners who are paid to weep and to grieve. And this procession is leaving the city. And Jesus sees it and He stops. And He meets them in their needs. And Luke actually ties both of these stories back to chapter 6. right? As we were looking at the Sermon on the Plain, if we look at verse 47 of chapter 6, when he, when he tells them at the end, he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I'll show you what he's like. And he re- describes the man who built his house with a deep foundation on the rock, on solid ground. He says, That's the one who comes to me, listens, and obeys. He's drawing our attention to the centurion saying, he's coming to me, he's listening, and he's obeying. He's tying this story and this call to trust Jesus. And who are you going to follow with the centurion who's not a Jew? And with the woman who is weeping and grieving her loss, we we tie it back to chapter 6. The initial beginning of the story or the sermon with the Beatitude. This is chapter six, verses twenty and following. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and he said to them, "Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry for you shall be satisfied. And blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh." Right? And he shows these blessings that he's reminding them this world isn't our home. That we have a greater hope and a greater need. And we have this spiritual need that I'm going to meet. And that the abundance of this world can blind our eyes and our spirits to the need that we actually have. And right as He meets this woman in her grief, we're we're supposed to be drawn to blessed are those who weep now. But they're going to laugh. Like He's going to meet her in her grief and He's going to bring tremendous hope, peace, and healing. And so... In it, we see that the servant who was highly esteemed and loved and cared for by the centurion, when he gets back, he's healed. Right? It's happened. But it feels almost nondescript. Look at verse 10. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. You're like, hey, that's a big deal. Why so little detail? And with the the resurrection of, of the young man, we see in verse 14... And then Jesus came and he touched the bier, and the bear stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. The dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Right? Again, it, it's, it's just kind of like, and it, he did what he said he would do. And we get a little more response here because the crowds are freaking out, right? And they're fearful and amazed and wondering what is going on. But in both of them, we're left kind of wanting more like, Hey, someone's healed. Someone's alive. Luke, give us something. But the point, the focus here, actually isn't on the miracles as much as it is on the person of Jesus. It's drawing our eyes to the one who is doing the miracles. It's drawing our eyes towards Jesus. So let's let's see what we can note about Jesus here in Luke 7. The first thing I want us to note is verse 13. And when the Lord saw her, meaning the widow, He had compassion on her and said, Do not weep. And Jesus had compassion on her. Like, would we not run too fast past that this morning? That the God of the universe, the Messiah, saw a woman, nondescript, vulnerable, marginalized, not well connected, with no means of changing her situation, and when he saw her, he was compassionate, had compassion towards her, for her. The, the good news for us this morning, the same Jesus has compassion on us. That based on your situation right now, whether you are well-connected or not, whether you are a man or a woman, an insider or an outsider, whether you think you've earned something or you have nothing, whether you're in grief, right? Jesus sees you. And when He sees you, He has compassion on you. He cares. And He he sees your hurts and your needs. He knows you. He understands. And He wants to offer real help. It's not small words of just, oh, I'm so sorry. It is deep compassion with action behind it. Look, He is showing us in this section that He overcomes not just disease, which is tremendous, but that He overcomes death. That when He speaks, death has no choice but to give up its death back to life. Right? Like what beautiful, powerful news. Because we have a real enemy. And listen, we, we've spent the last two and a half plus years just being really reminded of the proximity of death. And it's not that death has actually been closer. Right? It hasn't. Like, suffering and tragedy and difficult situations and disease and loss have been around forever. But we've been more aware of them as a society, right, at the same time. Like, we've known that, okay, that family's had a rough go or that individual's had a rough go. We've just been more aware of it together. That there's been a lot of pain and a lot of grief and a lot of suffering so it feels heightened. And it feels more significant. So I think it's important for us to be reminded that we're not supposed to become numb to those things. We're not supposed to become indifferent to them. Like The, the, the hallmark of Jesus here is compassion. And that we would continue to show compassion to one another, that we have a real situation, a real enemy, a real problem in death. Remember Ecclesiastes, where we were at the turn of the year, right? Eternity has been put into the heart of man and woman. Like we long for eternity. why death feels like a separator and so wrong. And we are we're not worthy of God's rescue. We are like the centurion, right? Saying, Oh, whoa, 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 it is. If you are who I think you are, I'm not. I'm not worthy. We are like the widow saying, "I've got nothing. I I literally, I've got nothing to fix the situation. I've got nothing to offer here." Paul will say in Romans, "We've all fallen short. All right? Our sin, our rebellion, has separated us from God. We have an issue because death then ends life, and then there's judgment. Right? We have a problem, and yet Jesus is showing us. He's bringing us." Good news that even though we have a real enemy, that that enemy listens to Him. That when He says, no more death, there's no more death. That when there's no more disease, there's no more disease. That He is bringing hope and peace and reconciliation and restoration. Listen to this passage. This is John 11. Another scene of of Jesus encountering death and a friend. This is the story of Lazarus. But this is uh, beginning in verse uh, 25. When Jesus was speaking to Martha, He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in Me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in Me shall never die. Do you believe this? Like, Let's hear that question to us this morning. Do we believe this? That the one, although he... Everyone who lives and believes in Me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Jesus is interrupting the world here. And he's saying that, listen, death doesn't win against me. I win. And I'm going to bring you in on this. And so the compassion that he has, the good news that he has, let's think about some of the ways that he gives Meaning and hope and peace in the midst of a real enemy. Right? When he, in John 14, when he's engaging his disciples right before his death and they're freaking out and wondering, like, what are we going to do? How are we going to handle this? What does he tell them? He says, listen, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Like, there's work being done to make this thing right. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm also going to come back. I'm going to return for you. He tells them, I'm going to leave the Holy Spirit to comfort and to bring um, mercy and understanding and insight. And he'll only say what he hears the Father say, right? That, he's, that We have the Holy Spirit, we have a return of Jesus, we have a place being prepared, and we have prayer because Jesus is going to hear us. We're going to have access to Him through prayer. Romans 8, Paul tells us that nothing separates us from the hand of God. Nothing. Not life nor death, right? Not angels, nor principalities. Not heights, nor depths. It's like there's nothing that separates us. Ephesians 1 tells us that the Holy Spirit is a seal. It's like a down payment. That when we have the Spirit, it is a reminder to us that what Jesus has promised will come to fruition. He's saying, I promise you, that if you believe in Me, though you die, you will live. Jesus, how do we know that? Here's the Holy Spirit. The down payment, it's a sign, it's a seal that what I say is true. That everything I've said would happen has happened. Everything that I say will happen is going to happen. A passage that we read at almost every funeral. This is Revelation twenty-one. We think of eternity. Verse three I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And He will dwell with them, and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. And He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall, pain, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You know, what he's, he, he's telling us is this, is that when we die, our faith becomes sight. That we are with Him. That that in Jesus' death was the death of death. That He has put His enemies to open shame. That He has defeated and rescued them and so we have hope of a place that He is preparing. We have the hope of His return. We have the seal and the down payment of the Holy Spirit. We have access to a living Jesus today through prayer. And we have the reminder that when Jesus says, live, we live. That people set up off the Open casket. That people walk out of the tomb. Right? That when He says live, we live. And this is beautiful, restorative, good news. And it means then that we want to emulate the compassion of Jesus in this world. Because folks, people are hurting all around us. They are desperate for good news. They're desperate for truth. They're desperate for hope. And they need... Not just words. They need words. but They need action. They need compassion. They need people willing right, to be with them through the long haul. To point them to King Jesus. To remind them that this world is not our home. And it does not get the final say. That we have a place where we are headed and Jesus has established the path. The second thing I want us to see about Jesus out of this passage is not just that He is compassionate, but look at verse 7 and 8. When the centurion sends the second group, he says, don't presume to come to Me, but say the word and let My servant be healed. What he's saying is, hey, you don't have to come, but if you'll just say it, it'll happen. And what we see here is he's saying, I believe, Jesus, you don't have to be in the room, you don't have to touch Him, you don't have to do some magic show like... When you say it, it happens. You are powerful and you have authority. I'm saying the distance doesn't matter. You don't have to be visible or present for it to happen. Church, what good news for us today? As Jesus is currently in heaven, awaiting his return, as we are not those who walked with him that He does not have to be visible or present physically, embodied with us to save us. Isaiah 59 tells us, right, the arm of the Lord is not too short to save. Like that He's able to reach the places we need Him to reach from a distance. Right, because He has authority and power. Because He is the Creator and the Savior. And so let's not lose hope this morning for those who you are physically... Far from, that don't live near you anymore, those you are emotionally far from because the relationship has been broken, that your prayers are not somehow now not listened to, or heard, or effective. That visible presence and distance do not thwart the hand of God. We, this morning, any of you who would claim to be a Christian, the hand of God has rescued you from a distance. So we can pray that for others. We can pray for His ministry and His mercy and His salvation and His awakening in the lives of those around us. We have hope in that. Listen, if every story of miracles or healing or or coming from the dead were with Jesus physically there touching someone, we would have no hope for that. We might long for it, but we'd have no evidence of it. And so Luke is showing, right, even in this, Jesus is ministering to us by not landing in the centurion's home. A third thing, not just is Jesus compassionate, not only is he able to minister from a distance, but that he is bringing and drawing the nations to himself. The centurion was a non-Jew, right, a Gentile, who would have been a part of the, the Roman occupying army he was literally an enemy. And so when scripture says that we are the enemies of God, would we take hope that Jesus saves his enemies? That he rescues and redeems and draws them in. Right? Like that he is drawing the nations to himself. Listen to this is earlier in Luke chapter 2 uh, verse 32. When Simeon, right, is is worshiping because he's got to see the Christ child, and he says this, um, you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Like that there was already the hope that the Messiah would come and it would be for the good of Israel, but it would also be for the good of the world, for the nation. And this morning we are recipients of this. That for some 2,000 years people have continued to give hope and joy and peace and, and, and the message of salvation to those right, who are not Jews so that we would hear it and receive it, that we would know that Jesus has come for the nations, that we can be adopted in as sons and daughters of the King, that we will be counted among the crowd when all nations and all tribes and all languages and all ethnic groups are singing and worshiping the King Jesus, Right? that we see here that this is what Jesus is longing for and wanting and drawing us into. And then the fourth thing is this. So we have the compassion of Jesus that he doesn't he's not thwarted by distance that he's drawing the nations to himself. And then we just notice that he commends the faith of this centurion, this non-Jew back to a Jewish audience. Look at verse 9. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, meaning the centurion, and he turns to the crowd that followed him, right? So he's got his disciples and others who are just kind of following Jesus, going, "Okay, what's he going to do next?" Hearing what he says, being ministered to him, um, and he, right? This, this is the same crowd that he said, "Who are you going to follow?" Some of you are going to say, "Lord, Lord," and you're not going to do what I say, and others are you are going to come and you're going to listen and you're going to obey and you're going to build a foundation, right? They've seen the Pharisees throwing rocks, right? Meta- uh, not spiritual rocks at this point, right? Like the, 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 they have critiqued. Jesus. And so he turns to the crowd and says, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. He's saying, Not even in the people who have been longing and wanting a Messiah have been have there have there been those so far who have seen and had faith like this. And you were looking for it, hoping for it, longing for it. And yet this centurion, right, this non Jew believes. He's telling them, learn from this. So the question for us this morning is, do you believe that the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus is sufficient for you? Because what the centurion was saying is, Jesus, just say it. You're enough. If you'll say it, it will happen. If you'll say it, my servant will be healed. You don't even have to be here. Just say it. I trust and I believe that you have the authority and the power and the ability to do that. So this morning, the question for us is this. Do we believe that, that Jesus' life is sufficient for our life? That His sinless, perfect life is actually right in place of ours where we have rebelled and sinned against Him? Do we believe that His death, where He was crushed for our sins and our iniquity, not His own, right, to satisfy the wrath of God towards sinners, Do we believe that it's sufficient so that we right don't have to have that happen? And do we believe that his resurrection proves that he is who he claims to be, and that he is God, alive and well and on his throne, ascended to heaven? That we can't earn it. I love that Saturian. If maybe he whispered to him and said, "Hey, you might just tell him I built a synagogue, right?" And then as he's sitting there going, "Oh, what did I say? Why did I say that?" Right? like He sends some friends going, hell, oh, I'm not worthy. I, I know that. That we're not worthy. We can't earn it. We can only receive it. So the question this morning for us is this, is who do you say He is? Are you willing to say, Lord, Lord, and give lip service and then not follow and obey? Or are you the one who comes and asks and receives and then follows and obeys and builds their house on their rock, not because it saves you, but because He has rescued you. And then one final thought. Look at verse 16. Fear seized them all, meaning the crowd. And they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited His people. Another way of saying this is, um, help us here. Help us here. That, that that rescue is coming. That Emmanuel, God with us, is on the scene. And I want you to be reminded, this is Isaiah 61. This is the same passage that Jesus quotes from in Luke 4. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. We're seeing that take place in Luke. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Right? He's bringing comfort. To proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Listen, to comfort all who mourn. He's, he's literally bringing that comfort. To grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit that they may be called oaks of righteousness the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified what what the crowd is beginning to notice is the one we're hoping for and longing for and needing is here god is bringing help listen comfort to those who mourn life healing restoration god is is this the one and that's actually where we'll go next week. John the Baptist right, is going to ask that question. Are, is it you? Are you the one? Like, is what we're seeing, is that is that... Are you Him? So they are seeing and recognizing that God is visiting us. Emmanuel is with us and help is here. So I want to just leave us with this question this morning. Who do you say that He is? Who do you say that He is? We're going to stand and sing together here in just a moment. Sing to your King. There will be some men and women in the back if you need someone to talk to or to pray with. We'll be glad to do that. Um, but let's enter a time of worship together. Let me pray for us. Father, would we... Not be too quick to to run past the question of who do we say that you are, God. That we wouldn't simply assume um, that that our Lord Lord is is faithful. God, we know we are tempted to to earn something we can't earn. We're tempted to try to to gain your attention through our own efforts and merit. Lord, it is humbling to say we're not worthy. Lord, but it is a kindness from You that, we, that when we see that, that we are in desperate need of You and the only thing that can rescue us, the only thing that can save us, the only thing that can redeem us is You. Lord, so would we be a humble people who would see ourselves rightly and see You for all the glory that You deserve. And that we would then respond your salvation by building houses on rock, trusting, obeying, and following you. Lord, we want you, we need you, we are dependent upon you. Would you speak this morning in Jesus' name? Amen.